0: Let's kick off today by reading an extraordinary incident from the life of Jesus that I think you're going to find fascinating and, to me, exciting. Powerful demonstration of the character of God and the particular character of God that we're talking about today. If you would, we're going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and I want you to go old school with me, if you would. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and he's crossing over the Sea of Galilee, and came to his own town. Some men brought a paralyzed man to him, and there are a variety of diseases in the ancient Near East that would eventuate in paralysis. We don't know what was wrong with this man, but, but we know that he ended up being paralyzed. Brought a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now in reality, it's probably easier to say, your sins are forgiven, harder to do, but Maybe be easier to say, because who knows? Get up and walk. If you say that, nothing happens. It's embarrassing. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite phrase for referring to himself, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Let me read the next verse out of of my Bible. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to a person. You may be seated. So we are week two in our series of conversations that we're calling the Autobiography of God, and a biography is when someone writes a story about you autobiography is when you write your story yourself. And here's our working thesis as we're going through the series. God has shown us his character and his nature. God has written his autobiography in the life and ministry of Jesus. God has shown us his character and his nature supremely in the life and ministry of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says it well. It starts out by saying, you know, God's spoken many times over the years through the prophets and other ways. But in these last days, the author says, he has, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, in Jesus, we see the nature and character of God on display. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking stories of Jesus and looking at what they tell us about God. And here's what we're going to get from the encounter in Matthew chapter 9. If you miss everything else, don't miss this this morning. God is powerful without limit. Now, the fact that God is powerful, come on, that's axiomatic. This is perhaps the most fundamental truth about God. He's infinitely powerful, powerful without limits. Psalm 62.11 says, power belongs to you, God. Psalm 135.6 says, the Lord does whatever he pleases in the heavens above, on the earth, in the seas, in all their depths. The 19th century theologian Arthur Pink is certainly right. He said this, he who cannot do all that he will And perform all he pleases cannot be God. By definition, God is powerful. Of course. But even if we come to believe that, it doesn't necessarily mean very much to us. It's not personal. It's just an abstraction. Great, big, awesome force created everything that is. Okay, so what? So what does the power of God look like up close and personal? What does it mean, really, that God is powerful? God is powerful, so what? What impact does that have on us? And this is where Jesus comes in. He shows us what the power of God looks like up close and personal. That's why I love the incident in Matthew 9. At the beginning of this story, Jesus is on his way back across the Sea of Galilee. I want to show you a couple of pictures from our recent trip to Israel of the Sea of Galilee. These pictures come from Evie Showers and from Lisa Levi. And the first picture is obviously... A flock of birds that's flying over the. You can see, you know, the sea, straight bottom stretches across the horizon. This next one, you know, just the empty sea. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And I have to tell you, first impression, last year when I saw it, and again this year, it doesn't even look that big. It, it looks kind of smaller than you expect it when you're reading the Bible. It's also called the Lake of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesset or the Lake of Kinnereth. 13 miles long, again, 8 miles wide. Jesus crossed from one side of the sea to the other leading up to this incident. And the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, the side toward which we're looking, the opposite side from what we stayed on, used to be called Galilee of the Gentiles. That was non-Israel territory. On our side of the Sea of Galilee is the region of Galilee and the city of Capernaum. So you'll notice that it said he went to his own city. So by this point in his ministry, Jesus had moved to Capernaum. We know that from Matthew chapter 4, 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake or or by the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus had made, by this point in his ministry, he had made Capernaum kind of his home base. And Capernaum, is, you'll see in these next slides, uh, it was uh, larger than the city of Nazareth where Jesus' family was from. In this slide, Actually, Capernaum is pretty well excavated, and it's a fairly large ruin, and it was a fairly large city at this time. The larger structure that you see to your left is a second-century synagogue. So it wasn't the synagogue that was there when Jesus was there. It was the synagogue that Jesus would have preached in would have been very much like this. See, in this slide, we're actually inside the synagogue. Uh, This is interesting. That's our guide standing up, uh, talking to us inside the synagogue. The synagogue, you'll notice we're actually violating second century rules. Men would have sat on one side of the synagogue and on the other side, opposite that other set of pillars, women would have sat there. So some of you married couples know what this is like. You come to church on Sunday morning, you have your worst argument of the week. You got to come in here, sit next to one another so you want to make sure that you don't actually touch one another. Perhaps this would have been better, although in this case, you stare across and glare at one another during the service. But... Capernaum would have been a larger city than Nazareth. It would have been probably a prettier city, more activity going on. Even in these ruins, you can now look straight out on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful setting. You can see here the, the makings of what would have been individual homes or maybe baths. And if you're there in person, you can tell that there are paths uh, in between that would have been, you know, like alleys or streets. This is Capernaum. Also, by this point in his ministry, Jesus had begun to draw crowds. He was a little bit of a rock star in Galilee. Now, first of all, his teaching had become popular with the local Galileans. More importantly, there were these weird demonstrations of power that no one had ever seen before. So, don't sleep on this. This is the main thing that makes it hard for people to believe the Christian message. By the way, it also made it hard for the people of Jesus' day to believe. They didn't know what to make of it all. Sometimes those who witnessed it didn't know what to make of it. If you're skeptical, I get it. But you need to know that the reactions that the Bible gives to the people who were there of the demonstrations of Jesus' power, the reactions are just what you would expect if these things really happened. I mean, Jesus seemed to be able to interact literally with nature, and the witnesses were terrified when it happened. Jesus spoke, and people who had bizarre physical and psychological symptoms were changed, and the crowds often wanted him to get away. They didn't know what to do with this. Those close to him would eventually realize that this activity was actually Jesus' control over evil spirits. Plus, he was able to cure all kinds of diseases. Cure. Now, that particular exertion of power is what led to our story. So when word got around Capernaum that Jesus had come back to town, he'd made his way across the Sea of Galilee, people began to gather. And a group of friends wanted to bring a paralyzed man to Jesus to be healed. Mark and Luke also, in their biographies, record this account, and they tell us that The crowd around Jesus was so large that these well-wishers couldn't get their friend to Jesus. So they literally climbed up, cut a hole in the roof above Jesus' head and lowered the paralyzed man down right in front of the Messiah. This is when it gets really interesting, right? Jesus did something at that point that he didn't usually do. He looked at the paralyzed man and he said, Take heart, son, which can also be translated be encouraged, son, Your sins are forgiven. All right, a couple of observations about this. Number one, this was their concept of things. Some of you have heard this before. This was part of the typical worldview. They believed that sickness or troubles was always the result of sin. People have trouble, they believe, because God is punishing them, because they've done something wrong. And most of the time, this is just not true. In fact, in several incidences, Jesus corrects this thinking, but not here. Perhaps here, he's accommodating their misunderstanding, and he even wants to minister to it. Or even he's accommodating this man's misunderstanding of himself. Perhaps Jesus wants to alleviate this man's shame. Perhaps he knows that his shame is the greater problem in his life, whether the man realizes this or not. Or, perhaps in this case, the man's paralysis was a result of his own sin somehow, and Jesus wanted to deal with the root of the problem. We we don't know one way or the other, but we know this was a part of your thinking, and it was typically wrong. Secondly, only God can forgive sins. The local people who were witnessing this incident knew that. The teachers of the law certainly knew this, for sure. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I alone blot out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. God alone forgives sin. So we're not surprised when the teachers of the law think, this man is blaspheming. He's doing something only God can do. He's claiming something only God can claim. In fact, If we take him seriously, then he's claiming to be God. Look at how clever Jesus' response is. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. This word authority translates the Greek word exousia. I love that word. It's awesome. And I want to show you what it means. That word exousia, we translate it authority usually. It means literally, number one, the authority to rule. Number two, the sphere over which you rule. Number three, the ruler or the one who's exercising the power. Number four, control over something or someone. And number five, the power to act according to your will. You want something? The power to act on that something is exousia. So in Luke four thirty-two, for instance, this same word exousia is used of Jesus' teaching. Some of you remember this. Luke tells us that quote they were amazed at his teaching because his words had exousia. His words had authority. Matthew twenty-one verse twenty-three and Luke chapter 20, verse 2, they talk about the same incident in which Jesus goes in and clears the temple. There were people in the temple who were exchanging money for sacrifices and other kinds of marketplace stuff was happening. Jesus was completely fed up with this. He goes in and then the, the teachers of the law say to him when they see him clear the temple, by what exousia, by what authority are you doing this? The best example is probably later in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. They've accused him. They've come to the crucifixion point. And at the time of the crucifixion, Luke says this, quote, they wanted to turn him over to the authority, the exousia of the governor. You see, Rome had made an agreement with the Jews in the local area. You know, you do your religious thing. You exercise all the power over that. You want to. You cannot, however, execute people You don't have the exousia to do that. We're not granting it because we are ultimately the power here. So they turned Jesus over to the exousia, the power of the governor, because he had the right, he had the control, and he had the power that would enable him to put Jesus to death. This is what Jesus is saying to the crowd and the teachers of the law I want you to know I'm the ruler. I have control over what's going on here. I have the power to act on what I will. I have the power to forgive sins. And this is the kind of circumstance into which I'm going to exert my power because here's a person of faith who's in need. That's how God operates. This is the kind of thing he does. I'm showing you that. And just so you know that I have the power to exercise that kind of exousia. Watch this. Son, grab your mat. Get up and walk out of here. You're healed. And he did. He got up and walked out. And the crowd is stunned. Literally, Matthew says this. You remember the extra verse I read. They were filled with awe. Mark adds to the end of his account that the people said to one another, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus, always showing us up close and personal what God is like here. He shows us that God is powerful without limits, and he shows us what that power looks like. Passages like this, and maybe this one in particular, are often used as evidence to demonstrate who Jesus really is. You've maybe heard some of those kind of discussions before. Very legitimate. In other words, the explanation goes something like this. In this man, in Jesus, we see the raw, actual power of God on display. So this demonstrates, obviously, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's part of the Trinity because he's here on earth forgiving sins and only God can do that. That's the argument. In this man, But for our purposes this morning, for our discussion, I want us to see something slightly different. I want us to see a different emphasis to this same truth. I want us to see that in this man, we see the raw, actual power of God on display. In other words, Jesus shows us who God is and what he's really like, and in this story, we see what God's power looks like. We see what God's power does. In this action of Jesus, we see the nature of God as unlimited power on display and we see what it results in. Now listen, if unlimited power acts randomly and capriciously, that's terrifying to the extreme. If unlimited power acts randomly, capriciously, that's terrifying to the extreme. This is how the ancient peoples thought of their gods. They they thought they were random. They were terrified of their universe. But when unlimited power is combined with infinite love, then that produces peace beyond comprehension and incredible hope in the midst of impossible circumstances and tenacious joy. Wow. That's what's available to us. All right. If that's true, Why aren't we more amazed at God's power? Why does Jordan have to tease us to shout out at God's power? Why don't we walk in here on Sunday morning shouting, Woo! It's awesome. God is powerful. Remember how the crowds responded in Matthew 9? They were awestruck at God's power. They were amazed. We've never seen anything like this. Why are we not more like that? Why don't we come in here on Sunday morning whooping? Well, there are probably many reasons for that, but let me give you what I believe is a big one. Eric, come on up if you would. I think one of the reasons for this might be that we don't recognize how truly needy we are. We don't know how much in need of God's power we are. So, when that power is exercised in our lives, thanks God. We're not awestruck because we don't see the distance we between what we were and what we are. We don't see what God has done. We don't see how much God's power has already moved and changed and done in our lives and how much we need Him to do so. I don't think we see the extent of our problem and therefore. We don't know just how much power has been exercised or needs to be exercised on our behalf. So I want to illustrate this with one particular area of our lives. We could take a number of different areas of our lives, but I want to choose a comprehensive area of our life or a reality about us because it's the one from our passage. Again, we could take a number of different areas, but I want to take the area of sin. And sin's effect on our lives... And then the nature of our need and the exercise of God's power as a result of that. So this is Eric Foch. We're used to seeing Eric behind plexiglass. So here he is. Eric's one of our drummers. And good morning, Eric. And we're going to use this to illustrate the nature of my relationship with Eric. And I've known Eric for a number of years. And Eric and I have a friendship. So imagine my friendship with Eric and Eric. What you're seeing right now is my friendship with Eric in an ideal setting, crystal clear. So I'm able to perfectly communicate with Eric. He's able to perfectly communicate with me. I can hear Eric. I can see Eric's face. I, I can see his body movements. I know what he's feeling. I'm, I know what he's thinking. The communication between Eric and I is crystal clear. And this is, I believe how you were designed to be in relationship with one another, even with your neighbors and us with one another, and certainly with the people that you love, with your children and with your spouse. But the problem, of course, is that I am a sinner. And so I'm a a people pleaser. And I need for Eric to like me And to feel good about me. So in my interactions with Eric, it ends up being more about me than it is about him. And there are times when I want Eric, you know, Eric's got a need and he he needs something from me. But I, I need something from him. So what that does is, in every single interaction with Eric, it puts a film over my relationship with him. I have to look at Eric from the right angle. So I get a clearer perspective on him because of the nature of how I relate to him. Hand me that spray. What are you doing, Eric? Well, I have issues myself. Uh, I guess in relationships I, uh, maybe out of insecurities, tend not to let people get too close and when I try to I push away and that can lead to frustration and feelings of resentment and rejection from other people. And Eric pushes me away. And I respond by saying something Christian-like, forget you. (laughs) Except we do it right side up. Then, of course, there are specific interactions that I have with Eric. Uh, He says something very hurtful. Or he says something true, but he says it in a way that's meant to be crushing. Maybe he didn't consciously know that it was meant to be crushing, But it was, and I get hurt, and that just provides another barrier between the two of us. Or, what are you doing now? Well, you did something the other day I didn't like, and uh, these are curse words. (laughs) Things I probably shouldn't have said. And when he said those curse words, I then gossiped about him and hurt his relationship with several other people. And as a result of that, that added additional layers of hurt and difficulty and my ability to see Eric. You get it? Every single interaction that I have with Eric is clouded by my issues. And the longer we're together, the more difficult it becomes to really see him. And by the way, it's happening on his side too. You see how complicated and clouded our relationships get? You see the kind of gymnastics that I have to go through now. Get a good picture of what in the world he's thinking or doing or what he just said means. And I want you to recognize, I want us to recognize that what I have done to Eric here, I've done much worse to God. Because God loves Eric so much that when I do this to Eric, I also do it to God. And that happens with every person I love. So every one of you that is behind that plexiglass, every time I do this to you, I'm also doing it to God. And there is no way for me to have right and clear and clean and appropriate relationships with you. There's no way. It is not possible. You and I will learn more or less effectively to dance around one another. But we won't have real and helpful and meaningful relationships with one another. It's impossible. Unless the power of God is present to forgive. When the power of God is present to forgive... And things can become clear and clean. Now, it never works perfectly. There's still often residue left, but look how much clearer. Notice the residue's on Eric's side. But it's just so <laughs> clearer and cleaner when the power of God has been exercised in the form of forgiveness. Thank you, Eric. Let's give Eric a hand. God, God's power is not only real, it's personal. God's power brings change in us. It offers forgiveness to us. It brings healing to us. It restores our relationships. It restores our health. So how do we access God's power like the paralyzed man did? How do we make it personal? If this is all true, then how do we get at the healing and transformation and the forgiveness that is offered by God? We do exactly what the paralyzed man did and his friends. We go to Jesus. We invite Jesus into our conversations and into our finances and into our conflicts, into our marriage, into our lives. We surrender. We make him the director of our lives. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about a connection, a relationship with Jesus Christ. We make him the director of our lives. We don't have any other hope. We cut a hole in the roof if we have to. We do whatever it takes. I want to end by reading the final paragraph of Arthur Pink, that 19th century theologian. Here's what he says about the power of God. Well might the saint trust such a God He's worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were, were stinted in his might or, and, and had a limit in his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he's clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him. No need too great, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from. No misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27. So, Gateway, today... Second Sunday in Lent is the day of leaning in, of remembering the sweetness and relief of trusting in God. Some of us have forgotten. We've taken matters on ourselves again. We're used to doing it ourselves, and we've forgotten that it's all about trust, and today is the day to renew that trust, to renew that trust in Him, that leaning into Him. For others of us, there are a few of us here for whom today is the day of invitation. You've got to cut a hole in the roof this morning. Uh, you've got to ask Jesus to be the director of your life. You've, you've got to take your life to him. You've got to go to him and say, my best efforts, and I've ended up here. It's not all bad, but boy, I've really screwed up this place and this place and this place and this place. I didn't even get it fully. Until this morning, and I need you. I need your power at work in my life, please. Come into my life and forgive me. Clean up the plexiglass. I need that power at work in my life. Forgive me. My life is yours. Today's a day of invitation for you to turn your life over to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, We recognize how many areas in our lives we've made a mess of things. Sometimes with sort of right intentions, we just put a film over our connections with others and our connection with you, or sometimes because the film was there, we're misinterpreting what's on the other side of the plexiglass. And so we're operating, throwing up further barriers, and we don't even realize it. And we end up with these broken relationships. We end up with damaged marriages or we end up with terrible finances or we end up in a mess. And we can't figure it out because we don't see the film. We don't know it. It's just our operating system. We need your power. So today we remember. We lean into you. And others of us, Lord, who have never made this choice. Not really. Not really. Today, Father, I hope my prayer will cut a hole in the roof. God, I pray that they'll fall at your feet and that you'll say, get up and walk. Hear us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.